You're listening to The Semi-Filled Writer. This is a show about my life experiences, my love for entertainment, and of course, my failures. God bless us, everyone. You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. You really are a heel. You're as cuddly as a cactus. You're as charming as an eel, Mr. Grinch. You're a bad banana with a greasy black peel. Welcome to episode 25 of The Semi-Failed Writer. This is the last episode for the year. I tried really hard to get this out before Christmas Day because our film debate today is themed around Christmas. Now, I had some trouble deciding which two films to discuss because there are an incredible amount of movies considered Christmas movies. So I had to figure out which films could be closely related to each other and which films I was willing to watch again. Because let's face it, many of them are terrible. You think National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation is one of the best films of all time? I disagree. Moving on. I think I figured it out. Today, our film debate will be between Scrooged and How the Grinch Stole Christmas, the Jim Carrey version. And for the purpose of brevity, I'll refer to it as The Grinch. This is on brand with 2020. You've got two individuals who are incredibly grumpy, cynical, malicious, especially during this time of the year. And yet they both come to the realization that life is more meaningful if you can give more empathy to the people around you. I think a lot of people right now need to learn that lesson. Okay, on to the introductions. In the red corner from 1988, directed by Richard Donner, based on the Dickens classic A Christmas Carol, it's Scrooged. And in the blue corner, coming at you from the year 2000, directed by Ron Howard, based on the Dr. Seuss book of the same name, it's How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Here are the rules. We're going to have seven rounds. I will award a point after each round, and the film with the most points wins. Let us start with the opening statements. I want to bring your attention to the definition of timeless. According to Merriam-Webster, it means not restricted to a particular time or date. Stories can be timeless. And one great example of that is A Christmas Carol, written by Charles Dickens. The story has been retold and adapted many times for film. TV, theater, and even the opera. There are also derivative works that follow the basic storyline of A Christmas Carol. One of those is Scrooged. Scrooged is a modern-day story of a TV executive who embodies the spirit of Ebenezer Scrooge and eventually embodies the spirit of Christmas. That was corny, I know. But as serious as A Christmas Carol is, Scrooge defines itself as a comedy that capitalizes on the talent of Bill Murray and many others. You get the lesson of kindness while getting in a few laughs. I'm going to tell you a little story. When I was in college, a group of friends and I would have an annual viewing of the 1966 animated version of How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And every year, someone would bring up the idea of incorporating a drinking game. Basically, take a drink every time the word who is spoken. It's impossible to do because they say who quite frequently and you can't keep up, so I wouldn't recommend doing that. However, if you are of age and you're in a safe space, 
I recommend doing a drinking game during this debate. Go get your favorite beverage, and every time I say the word who, take a sip. It may make this podcast a little more enjoyable. Now about the film. A film adaptation for The Grinch could have been done earlier, but Ted Geisel, a.k.a. Dr. Seuss, refused to sell film rights to any of his stories. When he died, his widow was open to the idea, but made a lot of demands before she would give her blessing. She put up particularly high standards for an adaptation, which many successful filmmakers failed to meet. In walks Ron Howard to the rescue. The reason why we now have a live-action version of The Grinch is because of Jim Carrey's involvement and a more in-depth exploration of The Grinch and the Whoville community. How the Grinch Stole Christmas is a lovely film for the whole family. It preserves the message from the original book while bringing forth commentary on other important issues, such as commercialism, bullying, and proving seven-year-old kids are smarter than most adults. Let's go into round one. Round one is story. Now, as I said before, The Grinch is an expansion of both the book from 1957 and the animated TV film from 1966. We know the basic story, it's in the title, but here's what they add. There is a backstory that explains why the Grinch hates Christmas. You have a flashback that shows a baby Grinch showing up to Whoville by accident and acting differently than the rest of the Who's. He reaches his breaking point when he's eight years old and gets made fun of for his appearance during Christmas. And that's when he permanently relocates to Mount Crumpet. And we have a great moment when the Grinch agrees to participate in the hubilation. Everything goes great. He's judging fudge and other foods. He's doing a potato sack race. People are lifting him from above their heads. It's awesome. He's having a great time. Until the mayor gives the Grinch an electric razor, which triggers the traumatic memory from when he was eight. So with all of this, we have motivation for the character. In earlier versions of the story, we just accept the fact that the Grinch hates everything, but here we know why. The other addition is making Cindy Lou Who a more prominent character. She observes the way the world is now and believes that the way the Who celebrate Christmas is misguided. And she also believes that the Grinch is not a lost cause. So this character is motivated too. She sees the world differently and knows that it can be better. She works to pull the other who's away from excessive gift-giving and showing more kindness to one another. Now, Scrooge follows a man named Frank Cross, who is the president of IBC Television, and he really doesn't care about anybody. He fires one of his underlings, he gives towels and VCRs as gifts instead of bonuses, and he refuses to spend the holidays with his only sibling. Not only that, he has an entire team of people work on Christmas Eve as they put on a live production of A Christmas Carol. As he is conscious, Frank gets a warning from his old boss and is then visited by three ghosts. The Ghost of Christmas Past shows several events where Frank prioritizes TV over everything else. The Ghost of Christmas Present shows two homes full of love, and The Ghost of Christmas Future shows how his lack of generosity dooms the people in his life and how very few people mourn his death. Seeing how everything plays out, Frank has a change of heart. He interrupts the live feed of A Christmas Carol and makes amends with all the people that really do matter to him. This is a good story and it's very relevant to today. You could believe that someone like Frank in his position would have a come to Jesus moment. 
it would be nice if a lot of us could have that experience and be warned of our consequences before they happen, but we can't. That's why it's satisfying to see one of the biggest culprits get what's coming to him, but at the same time atone for his past transgressions. Now it's time to deliberate. Who had the best story? They're sort of similar. You have two of the worst individuals around who go out of their way to mistreat people and ultimately find redemption. I want to go back to motivation. With Frank, we take a look at his past and I don't buy that a guy with his past could end up being such a miser. Okay, so when he was a kid, his mom left his dad, and as an adult, he chooses to go to a dinner with his TV boss instead of going with his girlfriend Claire. And that leads to their breakup. I wanted more. I wanted more devastation and neglect in Frank's life that justifies his hardened behavior. In The Grinch, I would also argue that his experience wasn't as devastating However, the Grinch was already angry to begin with. That's how he was born. But there was a defining moment that caused him to go over the edge. I think we all have had that one embarrassing moment that causes a paradigm shift within us, and we never forget that. Because the Grinch's traumatic experience is clearly defined and fully developed, I'm giving the point here to the Grinch. Round two. Round two is dialogue. In terms of Scrooged, I have one thing to say. The bitch hit me with a toaster. I probably laughed the hardest at that line. But of course, most of the funny lines are going to come from Frank. For a lot of the time, he's very sarcastic. And it's funny to hear his jokes. And it's always at the expense of someone else. His arguments with his old boss and the ghosts of the past and present are pretty entertaining because they're all big personalities and they have to go a little extra when they're each trying to get their points across. And Elliot Loudermilk is really entertaining when he becomes erratic. I really wish I could do a great Bobcat Goldthwait impression. I'm going to sort of try it, so don't don't get mad at me. At one point like in, in the film, he has a phone call with the head of the company and when he's asked about who let Frank hijack the stage, he says, oh, um, Bryce Cummings is the idiot, sir, but um, he can't talk to you right now because he's sort of tied up. Uh-huh. Oh, well, in fact, he just said that you were a flatulating butthead. I'm sorry, I tried. But my point is, I am all for juvenile humor. On the other hand, you have Claire, and she has one of the best lines, the most meaningful lines. It's so simple. She says, that's the one good thing about regret. It's never too late. You can always change tomorrow if you want to. And later on, Frank adds to this and has this very powerful monologue at the end when he talks about how beautiful it is to give to others. And if you've never given before, you can start. And once you start, you'll want to give more, and that's much better than never giving at all. With The Grinch, they've taken pretty much all of the words from the book and the animated film and put it in this adaptation. You've got the great Anthony Hopkins narrating the tale, and at times you have the Grinch and the people of Whoville speaking in rhymes, and it's funny when the Grinch goes a little meta when he realizes he's speaking in rhyme. But then the writers have to fill in the rest of the gaps. There's added dialogue that wasn't in the original, and it feels like it fits. It doesn't feel jarring to go from this poetry and into natural dialogue. And there's a great lesson here for screenwriters. In the script, Something that can make your script 
dynamic, a very easy step to take is to just find different ways to say the same thing. For example, whenever you're writing action, you could easily say someone walks into a building. Great. But you don't have to keep saying that every time that happens. You could do something different like a person barges into the building, a person stumbles into the building, things of that sort. Just change it up. And here you have so many ways to call somebody mean and evil. And I, I've got some right here. Instead of just calling the Grinch as evil, you could call him as cuddly as a cactus or someone you wouldn't want to touch with a 39 and a half foot pole. Just think about that. There's just very uh, unique ways that you can write about certain things instead of using the same verbs and adjectives over and over. Another thing about the Grinch, there are moments where they sprinkle in more adult humor and it had to be cleared by Audrey Geisel first. That's Dr. Seuss's widow. There were so many windows that had to be cut, um, but a few jokes got to stay. There's a, a moment in the flashback where a random who couple got their baby delivered and the father says, he looks just like your boss. Overall, it's pretty tame. So for this round, when we're talking about dialogue, I think I'm going to give the point to Scrooged. The film works really hard to make it seem like it's an original idea and it recycles less of the original source material than The Grinch. Round three. Round three is characters. The Grinch is a Grinch, only this time we know of his motivations. What's interesting is that the people of Whoville are portrayed as regular human beings to an extent. In the Dr. Seuss world and in the animated film, the Who's are these whimsical creatures and always have a positive attitude. They're examples of what we aspire to be, but in this film, they're just like us, except they have weird-shaped noses and outrageous hairdos. You have the neighbors competing for the best Christmas decorations. There's Martha May Houvier, who is seductive and well-to-do. There's Cindy's teenage brothers who get into mischief and climb up Mount Crumpet to get a glimpse of the Grinch. And Augustus Mayhew, the mayor, he's probably the biggest a-hole of the Hughes. He's the one who does the most damage to the Grinch throughout the film and tries to wield his power to his advantage. He's pretty scummy for a who. And I said this before, Cindy Lou Who has a bigger role here, and it's great that they did that. She's the only one that recognizes that all of the extravagant spending on gifts takes away from a more meaningful view of Christmas. And her first encounter with the Grinch comes a lot earlier than in the animated film, and it happens when she's at the post office. She knows that you do not talk about or engage with the Grinch, but she is fearless. She believes deep down that the Grinch is not as bad as he may seem. And the fact that she's the one that essentially brings peace between the Grinch and Whoville is truly remarkable. In Scrooge, Frank is pretty much a sadist. In a strange introduction at the beginning of the film, Frank puts together a teaser to promote the Christmas Carol broadcast, and it's full of terror. It's got acid rain, drug addiction, international terrorism, freeway killers. He just really wants to make people incredibly uncomfortable. He causes one lady to die of a heart attack, a homeless man to freeze to death, and then there's a lady censor that's on set and she gets banged up a few times. Therefore, Frank has no problem with inflicting both physical and emotional pain. I think he's most entertaining when he becomes unhinged. After getting the visit from the first ghost, 
He starts to hallucinate and then becomes incredibly paranoid as others quizzically look on. He's also a little unhinged at the end when he gives his monologue, but in this case, he's just had this major revelation. And all of the love and compassion that was bottled up in him for all of these years just burst out of him. On the flip side of that, you have these supporting characters who are practically angels. I mentioned Elliot, who at first is very shy and timid, and even though he blows a gasket at the end of the film, he's without a doubt a good guy. Frank's brother James, despite having this strained relationship for most of their lives, he still makes an effort to reach out to his brother, at least once every year. And then there's Grace, who has to work with Frank every single day, and she's a single mother raising several kids. She tries everything in her power to get her youngest to talk again. And of course, there's Claire. She works at a homeless shelter. She speaks with such kindness. And even though Frank broke her heart, she still cares about him and finds him endearing. She still calls him Lumpy after all these years. On a personal note, I think Lumpy's a terrible nickname, but I didn't write this script. I know I spoke more about the characters as Scrooged, yet I liked how both the Grinch and the Who's were humanized. It's not just the Grinch that needs to change, but the Who's also need to look inside themselves a little more. I think the character development is one of the strongest parts of the film, so I will give the point to the Grinch. Round four. Round four is cast and crew. Let's talk about Scrooge first. This was Bill Murray's first film in four years. After he did Ghostbusters, he took a little hiatus and contemplated never acting again. This role was perfect for him because he does a great job of being sarcastic and cynical. And I did read, however, that he and director Richard Donner were at each other's throats throughout the entire production. Creative differences, I guess. Yet somehow they got through it. And then you've got some stellar actors that were very popular in the 80s. You had Karen Allen from Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Alfred Woodard, uh, Bobcat Goldwaith, I mentioned before, and Carol Kane. And something interesting I read about this, all or most of uh, Bill Murray's brothers were in this film. One of them was his brother. One of them was uh, a friend of the brothers that was there at a game night party. And then another one was playing Frank's dad in the flashback. And then there were a lot of cameos. There were all these stars that came in for just little pieces here and there. You got Jamie Farr, for, that was Clinger from MASH. Robert Goulet, Lee Majors, who is trying to do this action movie with Santa Claus. Uh, Buddy Hackett, Mary Lou Retton, America's Sweetheart, Olympic gymnast. And then you got the solid gold dancers. Not only that, I'm going to tell you more people. There was a street band performing in one of the scenes, and two of the people that were part of that street band were Paul Schaefer and Miles Davis. Jesus, how much do they have to pay these people to get in this film? I didn't mention Richard Donner before. Richard Donner was a very successful director in the 70s and 80s. He did the very first Superman movie, and then the two writers for this script were Mitch Glazer and Michael O'Donoghue. They were both writers from SNL during those years that Bill Murray was there, so I think the association kind of helped sell the point to Bill Murray to be part of this film. Now let me tell you about the cast and crew of Grinch. You've got Jim Carrey, 
you know, Audrey Geisel, she specified when she was first putting out the film rights for someone to take interest in it, she specifically said that someone of Jim Carrey's caliber has to be the Grinch. So she got what she wanted. And of course, he's does what he does best. He's got the contortion in his face and in his body, like his whole body is just an instrument to be able to give, you know, comedic gold there. He does something very interesting with his voice. He comes up with this interesting uh, voice for the Grinch. And this is not my description. This was somebody else's. But he, this person said that he sounded like a combination between Sean Connery and Mr. Magoo. And then you see some of the mannerisms that he does. And it just reminds me of uh, stuff he did from his other films like Ace Ventura, The Mask, Fire Marshal Bill. I got a little bit of that vibe going. At one point, he was calling the Who's losers, and I was seriously thinking that he he should have said, the hers. I wanted that Easter egg, and I didn't get it, but that's okay. I, I understand that it wasn't there. Cindy Lou Who was played by Taylor Momsen. This was her very first film. She is now retired from acting. She is the lead vocalist for this successful rock band called Pretty Reckless. And just so you know, she was like seven at the time The Grinch came out, She's 27 years old now. How old do you feel right now? Some other cast. You got Jeffrey Tambor, Christine Baranski, who is stunning in this, Molly Shannon, Clint Howard. He's always in his brother's movies, so it made sense that he would be in this one. Of course, I mentioned Ron Howard as the director. Brian Glazer was the producer. He convinced Ron Howard to try to step in here and try to get the Grinch made. And then your two writers for this were Jeffrey Price and Peter Seaman. And some of their most notable works include Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Wild Wild West. There are great casting choices in each of these films, but just by the sheer number of recognizable names, this round is going to go to Scrooged. Round five. Round five is music. For The Grinch, you had James Horner do the original score. Now you gotta know who James Horner is. The most popular movie that he contributed to was Titanic. Titanic, need I say more? In this film too, he uh, creates a few songs that are like sing-along where either Cindy Lou Who or The Who's start singing together in unison. And I think one of the most popular songs from that is uh, Christmas, Why Can't I Find You? They also sing You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch, the most popular song from the animated film they do it a little bit, um, they refresh it a little bit. They do an updated version on, on this song with a different vocalist. Now, I was surprised at this. I discovered that they have an official soundtrack. And of course, it includes the music from the film. But then you've got all these very recognizable names in country and pop music, even in rap, contributing to the soundtrack. I don't think these songs were featured in the film. I think this is just an addendum to the film. So let me tell you who contributed to the soundtrack. Faith Hill, NSYNC, The Eels, The Trans-Siberian Orchestra, Smash Mouth, Ben Foles, Bare Naked Ladies, and this is the best one of them all, Busta Rhymes. There's a song on the soundtrack called Grinch 2000. It's a remix of You're a Me, One Mr. Grinch, and Busta Rhymes sings to this along with Jim Carrey. It's fantastic. I almost considered putting this on the intro, but if you hadn't heard this, go search for it. It's on Spotify. It's probably on YouTube. 
it's kind of hilarious when you hear it at first. Now, the person who did the original score for Scrooge is Danny Elfman. I think there's a group of people there that know Danny Elfman as the composer for The Simpsons, and then there's a group of people that know him as the lead singer to Oingo Boingo. What I'm trying to say is that all of you should know who Danny Elfman is, one way or another. They've got uh, someone doing a version of Brown Eyed Girl by Van Morrison. There's a song from Cool Modi in there, Smokey Robinson. U2's in it. They got a song in there, The Sweetest Thing, I believe. The most prominent song there, the one that I remember most from watching Scrooge, is Put a Little Love in Your Heart. At the very, very end, you've got the whole crew of A Christmas Carol that's on stage, and you've got Frank and everybody else there, and everyone who's watching this on TV is joining in on the celebration. And I like the way that they do their rendition. The problem is, and I'm going to be a little critical of this, they have the ending credits, and the song is performed again, but this time it's with Annie Lennox and Al Green. And I hate that version of it. No disrespect to Annie or Al, but it sticks into my brain. It's an earworm. I hear it and it will not get out of my head because I hear it over and over and over. It's like the song that doesn't end because the way they sing it, you have the chorus and then it leads into the chorus again and you can just go all eternity singing it. And it, and it takes a while for me to just try to get focused on something else. Anyway, now I got to decide who's going to win for music. And I really liked hearing about like all these contributors to the soundtrack. I liked how Buster Rhymes contributed to it. But what I want to focus on is the music in the film. I didn't care that much for the Grinch and the music that they provided. So for this round, I'm going to give the point to Scrooged. Despite that one song sung by Annie Lennox and Al Green. Round six. <laughs> Round six is production. In Scrooge, there were no elaborate stages or heavy makeup. It was it was unnecessary for that. They did have to create different sets. You have the IBC building, which is pretty sleek, and all the colors were muted to reflect how lifeless Frank was. And then you have Frank's childhood home. You have Claire's home, uh, his brother Jane's home, and Grace's home. Those are pretty normal. They did, They did fine with that. They did, however, have to create a TV stage for the filming of A Christmas Carol. They came up with the appropriate costumes that they would wear for the production. All of that was appropriate except for the solid gold dancers, and there's a whole scene where they're talking about how you can barely see their nipples. Very strange. The makeup jobs were the most impressive, particularly Frank's dead boss and the Ghost of Christmas Future, where he has these um, horrific creatures just living under the cloak. I never understood why the other two ghosts were represented by a cab driver and a fairy, but I don't think it matters. They did their job. Now, it took a lot of people to create the Grinch and the Who's and Whoville for a live action setting. Most of the set was created at Universal Studios, and I don't remember there being vehicles and a post office in the original sources, so they had to get creative and think, how would they have had it in the originals? How does it match up with what we already have as established locations? Now the makeup department, those people were the MVPs. The leads in that department were Rick Baker and Gail Roel Ryan, who shared the Academy Award for Best Makeup. 
The way to make the actors look like the Who's was to create an outrageous wig for each of them and to build prosthetic noses and artificial buck teeth. The Grinch was slightly more complicated. They created a bodysuit out of yak hair, and then they had to create an entirely new face, not just put on a funny-looking nose. And I read that it would take about eight hours for Jim Carrey just to get into full makeup. And he was so annoyed at this that he took his frustration out on everyone else. He was a literal Grinch. He nearly forced one of the artists, Kazuhiro, another Oscar winner, not for this movie though, he nearly forced him to quit. And Rick Baker and Ron Howard had to talk to Carrie and convince him to calm down a little bit, which he did. I mean, it must have been really uncomfortable having to sit in a chair for eight hours and then having to do a full day shoot. I don't think it warrants kicking holes in walls, but I can imagine Jim Carrey thinking that, you know, he didn't sign up for this. He wasn't expecting to have to go through this whole transformation. So good on him for sticking it out. And you know, I, I've done this once already. I've rewarded bad behavior by giving the cast and crew round to Scrooge because of that relationship with Bill Murray and Richard Donner. And even though Jim Carrey here was hostile to the crew for a time, the crew of the Grinch was still able to do their job. And they did it spectacularly. So I'm going to give the point to the Grinch here. Round seven. Round seven is Legacy. Now, just so you know, I, I don't have to say this, but I'm not going to talk about the original sources. I'm not going to talk about the original text and compare which one's the better story. We're going to try to stay focused on these two movies. Now, I've been on Netflix for the past few weeks. I'm trying to get through Selena the series, part one, and expect a blog post on that soon. But when you do a search for How the Grinch Stole Christmas, as of today, it's the number two movie on the platform. Ever since the start of the holiday season, The Grinch has been in the top 10 every single day. I personally like the animated film better, but I understand the appeal of this movie. You have one of the greatest comedic actors of our generation, and more importantly, you have a version of The Grinch for this generation. A lot of adults are fond of the older version, but now their children and grandchildren can appreciate The Grinch in their own way. Full disclosure, I rented Scrooge from Redbox because it's not streaming on any major platform. But afterwards, I read that this movie gets a lot of airplay on cable. So I did a search and sure enough, it's airing nearly every day on AMC. I wish I knew that before I paid the $3. Anyway, Scrooge is a darker movie than most other Christmas films. But I think there are a lot of people who are in favor of that. Sometimes we want our Christmas movies to be a little edgy, dirty, unapologetic. And there were several publications that put Scrooge in the top 20 holiday movies of all time. This includes IGN, Empire, Time Out, and Consequences Sound. However, at the end of the day, I think more people will go out of their way to see How the Grinch Stole Christmas. There is a bigger audience for it. Both adults and kids are going to want to watch it. There's a smaller pool of people that will watch Scrooge, and even if they wanted to watch a more unconventional Christmas film, they'll probably go and see Die Hard. So for the final round that's deciding it all, I'm going to give the point to the Grinch. 
And that, my friends, is the end of the debate. The winner is How the Grinch Stole Christmas with a score of 4 to 3. And if you were keeping count, I've said the word who 43 times, so you must be feeling pretty good right about now. That was the last episode of 2020. We did it. I made it a full year of doing the semi-failed writer. I wish I could come with something profound to say, but all I can say right now is thank you. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for your kind words. And I look forward to doing this for another year. You can reach me at semifailedwriter at gmail.com. My website is semifailedwriter.com. My Twitch and Instagram handles are semifailedwriter. I want to wish you a happy holidays and a happy new year. I will talk to you again in 2021. Take care.